My name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Embers to Excellence. My goal is to explore the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. In addition to leadership, I like to discuss mental health, PTSD, and overcoming adversity. If you have a favorite episode, I would love to hear about it. Message me through social media or my website, and I will share some free tools to help you achieve your goals. Please like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you haven't purchased your copy of my book, Fireproof, please grab a copy today. Thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Angie Morgan. She is one of the authors of uh, Bet on You. Uh, and also, there's a couple other books that, that she has written that are New York Times bestsellers. Uh, she is a former Marine Corps officer, um, a dynamic, creative thought leader who knows how to unlock the capability and talent of leaders at all levels. You know, some of her leadership abilities, uh, her skills, that knowledge base, uh, you know, in the beginning of her book, Bet on You, they uh, talk a little bit about that experience and how they developed as leaders. And I'm saying they, um, Angie co-wrote Bet on You with her friend and partner, uh, business partner. Courtney Lynch, yeah. Courtney Lynch, okay. Uh, (laughs) With her, with her uh, good friend, uh, Marine Corps fellow Marine Corps officer, um, uh, co-authored "Bet on You." And uh, let's see, some of some of her experience comes from um, you know being a special advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff on diversity initiatives, and engages routinely with boards and organizations to drive performance. She's an avid athlete, and uh, her competitive nature and motivation to win shows up in every client engagement as she inspires others to be their best. And I'm thrilled to be speaking with you today, Angie. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Uh, So welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Dave. I'm really happy to be here. I love what you're doing. Thanks. Well, um, let's start off in, in the beginning. Uh, where were you born and raised and what were some of your early influences? I grew up in northern Michigan in a really small community and it was very much so, not to date myself too much, but I think that some people are like me among your listeners. Uh, this is all pre-internet. And so my fast pass to this outside world was reading. I was an avid reader growing up and I read everything and anything I could get my hands on. I particularly loved biographies and autobiographies. And so really just learning about people's lives has been a true fascination for me. But through the process of reading, I realized that there are so many experiences I wanted to acquire. One of them being that I wanted to go to a large university just to experience diversity. We're a very non-diverse community up here in Northern Michigan. And I say up here now, because I I moved back here eventually um, later on in life, but again, not very diverse. I just wanted to experience culture and just the benefits that that can bring. One of the earliest influences was definitely my dad. He served in the Marine Corps. That experience in his life was one of the transformative. And I know this just because of how he revered his experience. And we would go see his buddies who he'd served with. And the camaraderie that they had was just palpable. And I was always just very curious about it. And so when I went to the University of Michigan, 
which was a huge leap for me. I mean, even though it was only three and a half hours away, it might as well have felt like a different world. It was a different world at Arbor than Kalkaska. And he introduced me to ROTC and he knew that I wanted to be an English major and that there were no, and I didn't really want to teach and there were no real English factories that I could go work at. And so he's like, well, why don't you think about the military to get some life experience? And the way that he revered his experience in the military got me started on my journey to look at the Naval Reserve Officer Training Program, specifically the Navy. But as soon as I got there, I mean, I was kind of a sucker for the Marine Corps, just be, most mostly because I'm an athlete. And it did, that didn't intimidate me. In fact, it challenged me. And I really, you know, struck a chord within me that I actually wanted to do this. Do you have any siblings? Are you an only child or? Yeah. So I had an older sister and that was not going to be like, she was into beauty pageants and things like that. So that was not even a possibility as far as my dad was concerned to ask that of her. And I did have a younger brother. He passed away when he was in college, but so he, he had thought about the military too, of course, but it was really just me. And it's funny because I have two sons and one is a senior in high school and he's thinking about the Marine Corps. And I see that for him. And in my youngest son, I don't see that in him like as part of it. And so I feel like there's this relationship, this call to service. I can definitely see it for my oldest and my youngest. I'm like, yeah, I don't think it's going to be for you, buddy. <laughs> And it's not because there's anything you know, wrong or off about it. It's just that I feel like, you know, military finds people, people find the military. And it's a really, you know, it's an interesting relationship. And I would never want to push that on anybody. But sometimes yeah. you see it. Yeah, no, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And, um, you know, there, there's people that have that, uh, I don't know, that way about them where you could, you could just picture them in military service, but if not there, you know, maybe somewhere else being of service and in their own way. And uh, so I, I'm inter interested, did, did your father serve as an officer? No, he enlisted, actually. He enlisted right before the Vietnam War, and he was in the first wave in 1965, going into Vietnam. And so that's possibly the reason why uh, he wanted me to be an officer. <laughs> he's like, he went to boot camp and he saw, he's like, you know, everybody's yelling at us and getting screaming. He goes, then an officer walked by and everybody stopped and they saluted him. He's like, who the heck is that? <laughs> like, <laughs> who could be more important than the people yelling at me that they will stop in their tracks and salute. So it was funny. He's like, you know, I'd go in as an officer. And he was actually like, I'm not even sure women could join the military. He's like, I never saw a woman in the Marine Corps. I hear that they can, but was where his mindset was. <laughs> it's funny too, because my, my oldest son is looking at the military service. He's really torn about which direction to go if he wants to do something right after college. And I think, or right after high school or, or go to college and go to the officer ranks. And I think we've got this interesting generation of kids who after a couple of years of a pandemic want to do something with their life. Like they just want to, you know, feet first and do an experience. So it's definitely interesting. You, you said you got involved with ROTC. And so did you do ROTC all the way through uh, your, your four-year degree? Yeah. So I didn't have a scholarship my first year. It was sort of my trial year to see if this is what I wanted to do. And then I earned a scholarship. And then upon graduation, 
I earned a commission and it was really nice actually my senior year in college having that sense that I knew what I was doing because a lot of my friends were still trying to find internships and jobs and were very very nervous that year of their life I was very excited because I knew exactly what I was going to be doing for the next four years in the sense I knew I was going to go in the Marine Corps I didn't know where I was going to get stationed and what I was you know going to be doing as a job but that gave me just so much security at that stage of my life and allowed me to really enjoy my senior year <laughs> in college. It's because in the year I turned 21, so that yeah. made it very special. <laughs> so, and did you get your MBA while you were in the, the Marines or was oh, it after? Yeah, that was much later. In fact, I didn't go back to school until 2013. And so that's a significant gap. Like I served four years. I left active duty actually 10 days before 9-11 and then started my private sector career, started off in pharmaceutical sales for about a few years before starting Lead Star with a woman I served with in the Marine Corps, Courtney Lynch. And so we've been building our business for 20 years and about, I'd say about halfway into that Lead Star, you know, 10 year uh, it just dawned on me that our clients were asking us to do more consulting and business consulting and strategy consulting. And my background was, you know, Marine Corps, English major, pharmaceutical sales. I didn't have a business degree and I felt like it was almost irresponsible not to have a business degree if I'm going to be advising businesses on business strategy. So I went back to school at, at like an executive MBA program and it was great. It was one of the best things that I think I did for my career at the time, mostly because it introduced me to a whole bunch of really cool people at also at this stage of their career where they wanted something more rarely in life. Do we have a chance to reset our professional network? And that was just awesome. I'm curious about your time in the Marine Corps. Um, it, you know, you finished your bachelor's degree and then right after that, did you go to officer candidate school? Is that how yeah. that works? Yep. So I went six months to officer candidate school and then um, after that, that's where you get your, well, I'm sorry, you go to officer candidate school before you graduate college. That's like six weeks in the summer between my junior and senior year. And then after college, you go to six months of what they call the basic school, which is also another officer school, but it's really like the fundamentals of being a platoon commander. So that's a six month school and that's where you get your duty station and then your job. So I was getting, going, going to be stationed in Hawaii, which was like awesome. And I got the job I wanted, which was even better because if you're <laughs> rarely in life in the Marine Corps, do you get everything you wanted? And I felt like my luck had run out entirely. So I got the job, I got the duty station and then you just kind of wait to get your job training school, which is only a couple months. Then I spent about three and a half years in Hawaii. That's awesome. It was awesome. What an adventure. Now, so much fun. one of the cool things uh, about the Marine Corps that I, I've always loved this about the Marine Corps is that regardless of what your job is, first and foremost, you're infantry. You are trained in combat, combat arms. And I, I just, man, I, I just love that piece of the Marine Corps that it doesn't matter where you're at, you know, you could be a cook or, you know, uh, I don't know, a, a store clerk kind of person. Like affairs officer. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> Every Marine's a rifleman. You know, it's, I don't really 
talk about that qualification in my current career, but you're absolutely right that everybody is trained to pick up a rifle and, you know, essentially do whatever you have to do. And I will say that if, if we're calling in public affairs people to be on the front lines, we're in heaps of trouble, but <laughs> we can do it. <laughs> we can do it. And yeah, it was really to me and personally too, it was one of the hardest things I think I've ever done. And it wasn't necessarily the physical aspect of that six month school. It was um, from an ego perspective, one of the hardest things I've ever done because I was used to flying through college, flying through life without having to really work hard. <laughs> and, and this was the very first time that I've ever, and I'm I mean, I worked hard, but I never felt pushed and stressed beyond my abilities. This was the first time when I just was really challenged with what we were learning. And contextually, like I didn't grow up with G.I. Joe. I didn't grow up with rifles. We were outdoors people, but that was like cross-country skiing. So I was never into hunting and fishing and doing all those things. And suddenly we're doing all of these activities and it took a lot just to keep up and barely pass. And there were many times in that experience where I wondered like, gosh, do I really have what it takes? I thought it was good. And I had a really great mentor who pulled me aside one day and just said, listen, everybody's struggling with something. He's like, you know, I get it. You're five foot three. You are a small person. When we go on these 20 mile marches, you have to practically run to keep up compared to the six foot two guy. But there are things that are much easier for you than other people. So just know that everybody's has their struggles. And that was really illuminating for me. It may not be the same struggle, but everybody is going through something. And I think that that sense of unity and connection, that it wasn't just me and my ego that were struggling. It was a lot of people and a lot of people's egos. I mean, you want, you know, for Marines, probably the work that you've done in the past too, like you want people to have a pretty strong ego, but you don't want it to be so strong that you can't be humble and pick up the lessons learned and really be coachable and developed. Yeah, I don't know if uh, you'll be able to see it, but. Oh, be humble <laughs> or be humbled. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I was definitely humbled. It took me a while to realize like, oh, there's, there's a lesson here that my ego is preventing me from picking up, but I've picked it up. Well, I, I've been so that phrase was shared with me years ago early on in uh i guess when i was really moving into a leadership position in the fire service and i felt like i was ill prepared to lead some of the people that were uh there already people that had more time more experience more education you know i'm like why in the world would they follow me and uh, a good friend of mine started sharing uh, leadership literature with me. And one of the things that he he told me was, you know, be humble or be humbled. He's like, I use that phrase all the time. And and so I've I've used it in my professional career, but it wasn't until recently that I I really explored that and what it means to me because I've as I've moved into a different phase of my professional life, there are people that have much higher level skills than than me that I've had to say, hey, you know, and they've, a lot of the individuals that I've been coming into contact with uh, recently are just so eager to help me 
uh, get to the next level. And I've always been the person that's helped other people achieve. And now uh, it it has been a humbling experience. Like, you know, like, no, I'm, I'm at that level where I need to accept this help. And <laughs> I just had a conversation with somebody. Um, it's one of my coaching clients. He's a senior sales leader in an oil and gas company. And he's really trying to develop his team. And I'm like, have you asked them for help? And he's like, I'm here to help them. And I said, well, let me ask you this. Change his name. Jim, I've got a problem. Can you help me? And he's like, Angie, of course, I'd love to help you. I said, okay, how did that feel when I asked for your help? He's like, oh, great. Felt like I had something to offer. I'm like, there you go. You're giving your team a gift, like asking them for help. You're actually, you know, we think so much like, oh, it's going to share the weakness. It's going to be vulnerable. But what you're giving somebody is a gift. Everybody wants to help you. They just sometimes need to be asked and be taught how. So I love that you're talking about that from a humility perspective. It does take some humility, but what you discover is that when you ask, um, people just rise to the occasion. They take care of you. That's kind of not necessarily our nature, but I think it's part of this human connection. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit about your your relationship with Courtney. How did you guys meet? Um, how did you then decide later on? Because she's, she was in the Marine Corps uh, a few years after you left. Yeah, she got recalled after 9-11. So we actually went to training together. So the six-month course where we were both kind of fumbling through, you know, kind of discovering what our paths were going to be. We went through this period. She was a public affairs officer. She was stationed in Japan, which doesn't seem close to Hawaii. But, you know, if you're in the Pacific Rim, you're kind of close to each other. So we would see each other and, and our friendship really formed through those experiences. We left active duty. And then during that time, um, I was working in pharmaceutical sales in L.A. She was eventually became an attorney. And I think we were both just really unsatisfied with our careers. And it wasn't because we were making money. We were making really good money. I think what for both of us was missing just a sense of mission and importance. Like when you're in the Marines, you're not making hardly any money, but you feel the work that you're doing is important. And so I think that that was that united thing. And then we also were noticing our experiences in the private sector, specifically what was really relevant about our Marine Corps experience. Like we had learned not just this leadership vocabulary, but just these behaviors that, gosh, if everybody, you know, thought about setting the example, holding themselves accountable instead of placing blame, served others, really thought about taking care of the people around them and saw themselves as that being a priority role for them, or not like losing their cool, you know, if there's a crisis, just being able to be level-headed and how to build credibility with people. So we we kind of had these multiple ongoing conversations where we're unhappy, service is missing, we see these observations, there might be an opportunity here. And we decided that we were going to start to write a book, um, which we ended up completing. It took a long time, you know, from the idea to actuality, again, in your mind, you're like, oh, this will just take the summer, we'll be done. And then the reality is like, wow, this is a two-year process because it took that long to <laughs> complete the task, right? Anything yeah. seems easy from afar, as you probably know from your experiences too, like from afar, anything looks easy, but you're doing it and you're like, oh, this isn't at all. But we um, found an agent and he said to us, I really love your project, but I'm not going to take this on unless you have something to go with it. You know, publishers don't really care about the quality of your work unless you have an audience. He goes, maybe you guys should start speaking on leadership. 
And we were really lucky in regard to the fact that we had solid foundation of support that we could in our mid twenties, leave our paid steady jobs and transition to write and then build a speaking business essentially was what it started off at, at that stage. I mean, I was able to do it because I had um, no kids at the time. I had kids shortly after, but I had no children and I had a spouse. So I had this nice little income support, same with Courtney, no kids and her spouse. Actually her spouse is, was in the fire um, in the fire business for a little bit too. He's a fireman and now he's a police officer. So public service runs deep in their family as well. Wow. So we were just really fortunate. And then we started shopping our concept around. And a few of the clients, our very first client was Walmart, which is great because if you can claim that as a client, other people say, okay, you're legitimate. You do have a business here. Then the book came out and it was a different, different book market. Uh, military leadership books about 20 years ago were a new thing. Right now, there just seems to be a heck of a lot more of them. So we just had a really unique niche that we had a book, we had a speech that became training programs that became consulting. And now we spend most of our time coaching and doing keynoting and workshops on occasion. Um, not as many because of COVID, I think, as once before COVID, but it's been a real joy to start relaunching training and development packages. Now, did you publish Leading from the Front and Spark with Courtney as well? Yeah, all my books, um, we've been co-authors on. Oh, so wow. Spark came out in 2016 and then Bet on You just came out. Yeah. Uh, now, let's let's dig into Bet on You a little bit. Um, you know, going through it, uh, there, there's so much usable content. There's just all these nuggets and, and you are working on yourself as you go through the book. And um, I, one of the very first things is the, the play it safe paradox. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And it's funny you said, you know, you're working on yourself as you're going through the book. I was working on myself when I was writing the book in the sense that our business got massively disrupted because of COVID. We lost a ton of business because we can no longer travel by air and speak to people in large audiences. So that created the opportunity though for Bet On You. And so writing about risk and having to take risks, there was this really interesting therapy <laughs> involved in the process. And one of the things that you're talking about is how we open the book and just this really interesting perspective that we have on risk taking, because most of the lessons that we acquire early on in life are don't do this, don't do that, have a plan B, don't, you know, and we think about this fairy tale stories. If you don't do what your mom tells you, you know, Little Red Riding Hood, stay on the path, your grandma's going to get killed and you might get eaten too. So we have all these things like, okay, I better follow the rules. I better play it straight. But then you get to a stage in your life where the rules just don't work for you. You know, the, the guidance is well-intentioned as it was meant to be, doesn't really fit the vision that you have for yourself. And we call that when agency takes hold. So you go from the passenger seat to the driver's seat in your life. And suddenly you want to do things that are a little off road and people around you are like, you're nuts. Don't do that. But you're like, but that's really what I want to do. And I get it. nobody else is doing it, but this is where my heart is driving. And that's the play it's a paradox. We're taught to play it safe, but then the paradox is it no longer is going to help us live the life that we feel we're intended to live. What are some of the biggest misconceptions about risk? 
And we write about that too, because I think a lot of people hear the word risk and they're like, I don't take risk. And we're like, well, really? When was the last time you went to the doctor? <laughs> you know, you take risks. <laughs> or what about that unhealthy relationship that you're finding yourself in or that conversation that you're not having that needs to be had? We take risks all the time. We may not call them that. And so one of the things that we wanted to do in the book was just really like demystify risk. Like, what are we talking about here when we say taking risk? It's really a decision followed by action that leads us into uncertainty. And when you say it that way, you're like, okay, I guess I do take risks all the time. And then the misconceptions that we wanted to confront are that first, you know, people think about risk as the opposite of reward. Like it's the downside of a choice. It's the bad thing that's going to happen if the good thing doesn't happen. And that's just not true. Like, I bet if we were to say like, what are some of the best risks that you've taken in your life? And, you know, maybe for you, it was walking into that Marine recruiter's office and then going to the Navy and starting off that. I mean, that was a risk and think about what happened. It didn't necessarily turn out the way you wanted to yet. It opened up these other opportunities for you. So it wasn't the opposite of reward. It was your path to reward. And I think about, you know, going to the university of Michigan or even, you know, some of the bad choices, or we'll say bad choices, there was something good that came out of it. So that's what we're talking about. And I just think about moving forward. So that would be the number one thing is, you know, we think of risk versus reward. It's not risk is the path to reward. The second is that we think about risk in big moments, like jumping feet first in something, taking the leap. And the way that we talk about it, it's like, no, 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 that's risk done bad. That's why we love as a society, 90 day fiance, like those are really big, bold risks. And those really represent bad choices. That's not sustainable. <laughs> it's not realistic. It's not how success happens. And so we think about risk as not as a leap. It is a series of incremental steps. You know, you think about an idea, a great example, um, February, 2021, my husband and I went to Key West and apparently there was no COVID in Florida at the time. So we could walk around pretty freely and, you know, look at life differently. And we had this idea of, cause we saw people carrying around sippy cups and we had this amazing idea like, oh, it'd be so much fun in our hometown. We live in a resort community of doing something like that. We just saw how much money could be made at like sippy cups, shots in it and think, and, but we got back to our community and started brainstorming. Well, it's not going to work. Let's look at the revenue model. Let's look at the spreadsheet. Okay, this isn't going to work. So it was about seven months later, somebody came to us, a friend of mine and said, you know, we're putting our coffee shop and pastry business up for sale. Would you guys be interested? And that had nothing to do with sippy cups, tequila, walking around Key West. But because we had done the work and thought process, it just made sense. So last year we bought a coffee shop and bakery and it's been a great experience. So again, series of steps to take that risk. And we never know what the outcome is going to be. Yeah. The final thing is like, we think we can avoid risk, but as we just discussed, we can't avoid risk. It's like thinking that we could have avoided COVID. That was my joke earlier, but we can't avoid things. I mean, things happen to us that we don't even like, we're all just one phone call away from some really bad news. Like we can't plan for everything. So risk is present in our life. And if it's present in our life, wouldn't it be best to know a little bit about it than to say like, oh, I don't take risks. Like, well, you do. Let's learn about it. And let's figure out how to use this quality to advance yourself in life and help you achieve the dreams that you have for yourself. How does, uh, you, you wrote about something called the kaleidoscope approach. And how does that relate to, to risk? And that goes to the idea too, that we tend to think of risk as in business, but we're trying to help people see their lives holistically. 
And so it's not just risking in your career. So imagine a kaleidoscope, what makes it so beautiful is its balance within all the different chambers. And what can make our life beautiful like a kaleidoscope is having a little bit more balance in all of those different chambers. We, you know, we're multidimensional people. So not just our career, but what about taking risk for our family? Maybe that is like taking a tech-free vacation <laughs> might be the biggest risk you could make for your family, but maybe it's the best need or, you know, really trying to reintroduce technology rules for your kids because you feel like there's a little bit screen time. There's risk, there's a relationship risk, but maybe that's the risk that you need to take. Uh, one of the biggest deficits I've seen in adults, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, um, is joy. Like I, I meet a lot of people who are just joyless, like they don't have any fun in their life and they just don't plan for it. And we want people to plan for joy. The final thing is um, risking for impact. What are you doing for other people? We're part of a community. You have to give up something to me to get the benefits of community. So what are you doing to serve those around you? You don't have to join the military or join the fire service or be a policeman, but what are you doing to make your world a little bit better for others? So yeah, what do you think about that risking for joy? Do you know too many unhappy, joyless adults? Yes. And it's awesome. Uh, I, I, I tend to have these conversations and I find, uh, you know, that most leadership gurus, you know, that really get it, they understand the importance of self-leadership, but the idea is that that self-leadership leads to personal development that then allows you to add so much value to the people that you're leading, to the people that you love, to the people in your community. And one of the things that I really enjoy talking about is, you know, when we're trying to figure out our purpose or our, you know, what what's the meaning of life? What does it all mean? You know, and why are we here? That kind of thing. Uh, I feel like we're all seeking that that joy, that happiness, that um, that pure form of like fulfillment, you know. Uh, and the the example that I like to give, and you know, it's more relevant to people that have kids because I, I use this story of you know, trying to teach my daughter something and, and her struggling with it. And then when she finally achieves what she was trying to achieve, and, you know, maybe I'm, I'm viewing this from afar or see her on stage or whatever it is, but it's something that I gave of myself to help her achieve something. It wasn't for me, it was for her, all for, for her. And that sense of fulfillment when somebody else gains because of the work that you've done, I think is the purest form of happiness and fulfillment that you can have. And I, and I think that's what we're seeking. And I feel like as a society, that's the massive deficit that we have, especially with some of the mental health issues that are going on. And we see them on the front lines of our business, just with the nature of our workers, you know, these are, um, non-salaried professionals, younger, and have been, you know, I don't want to say kept in captive <laughs> for 
a few years, but their lives were really, really small. And so it's like rebuilding those skills of service to others, because to me as a coach, you know, as a leadership coach and helping people achieve success in whatever pursuit that they're seeking, I get more joy from that than anything that I do, because there's something about fulfillment in there's just greater emotional connection to the fulfillment of others and the things that you do. And it is, again, it is something that you're doing right by championing, supporting others, but yeah, yeah very entirely. And, and that, I mean, it's ancient wisdom. I mean, uh, you know, humankind has been sitting around campfires talking about this since the beginning of time, you know, why are we here? And, and I think everybody really, you know, if we can dig in deep to that and understand that we are all here for one another, you know, we, we can't really survive if we're self-centered and egocentric and we're just driven to add, add, add to ourselves. We'll be miserable. We might have a lot of stuff, but, you know, the happiness isn't there. Yeah, we don't need more miserable millionaires in this world. <laughs> <laughs> we need to, yeah, people committed. Uh, yeah, you definitely speak in my language. I, I get that entirely. <laughs> I've had this conversation with a couple uh, of different people um, that like environmental safety or occupational safety or, you know, organizational safety. But in the book, you talk about, you know, three guides and, and three elements to your safety net. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? This ties to the fact that we don't want people taking reckless risks. Like if you only have $10,000 in your savings account and you take your entire savings and invest it in, you know, a franchise of sorts, that may not be a responsible risk that you take at that stage of your life. Um, so we recognize that one of our safety nets that we have is just our finances. So before you do anything, that will require a financial investment, really get intimate with your finances and make sure that first off, you have the resources you need. And second, because you see this too on the opposite side that you don't necessarily have more than you need. I think sometimes people overinflate what they need to take a risk and just get really comfortable with the fact that, you know, these are the scenarios, there's something in the middle. And so looking at your finances that way. Um, another safety net that we need is our judgment. Um, which is our ability to make sound decisions. We can only have so many firsthand experiences in life, but we can always develop our wisdom through the experiences of others. So as we think about um, the choices that we're going to make that are, you know, riskier in nature, going to, you know, help us pursue our risks, making sure that we seek out people who are more informed than we are and learn their lessons before we make the call. Then I think that's part of like being a part of a community. People want to help you and they want to share, especially their lessons learned. And so listen to them and take heed. You're asking and it's a wonderful thing. But the final thing that we want to remind people is that the strongest element of your safety net is your talent. And you have that going into any endeavor that you have. So you're not starting something new from ground zero. You have your experience, your wisdom, your judgment, all these things that you're bringing to your party. I read a story um, in the book about going through a divorce, you know, and throwing me into some serious questions of, um, do I still want to own a company? Should it be time that I do something a little bit, quote unquote, responsible in, before I get traditional employment with benefits and things like that? 
And it really dawned on me that I didn't self-reliant for many, many years. I may have lost half my, you know, investments or half my, you know, estate, quote unquote, but I still had hundred percent of my talent. And so reminding yourself that is that your talent is your greatest safety net is really important when you go about there. And so thinking about it, like your resources, your talent, and your ability to make sound decisions, that's the thing that's going to catch you if you fall. I coach a few people here and there, and I'm in a couple of different masterminds, and I get to work with some really talented people. And one of the things that I've noticed about a, a lot of them, you know, they're these high achievers is that there's a level of perfectionism, you know, that they they want everything to be perfect. They're pretty hard on themselves, you know, when they don't get it perfect. And and you talk a little bit about it in, in your book. How does perfectionism limit us, you know, when it comes to taking risks? It slows us down. And I think we spend so much time planning and waiting for the sun, moon, stars to align that inevitably we never take the risks that we want to take. And that runs then the risk of living a life of regret. We have a piece of guidance in the book, Savior Perfectionism for Never. <laughs> nothing is ever going to be perfect. In fact, um, it's going to slow down your progress. We advocate in the book for, you know, thinking about making decisions, um, the one thirds, two thirds rule. So one thirds of your time should be planning. Two thirds of your time should be doing. If all your time is spent planning, you're going to get no experience and you're going to develop no experiments to see what's working and what isn't working. So plan less, do more. And plus, if you're in the doing phase, you're in the learning phase. So you're able to really assess the validity of the choice. It's like, you know, thinking that you want to start an Etsy business. And so maybe you focus so much on building, you know, your products for your website and they're never going to be good enough. And my, advoc my advocacy would be, well, let's just get an Etsy page, put up a couple things, get some customer feedback and see where we go from there. Like you're worrying about things being perfect and you just don't even know if it's viable yet. One of the things that caught my eye was the effing cousins. Fear and failure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you catches a lot of people. I we get some really interesting comments about that. Some people are like, how dare you? <laughs> and it's like, well, I get it. Um, but we're Marines, so you can't really blame us for that. I think the F word in the Marine Corps is like, it's a noun, it's a verb, it's an adjective, it's an adverb. <laughs> it's just part of your vocabulary. We just get comfortable with it, but they're not the same thing, but they swing in the same circles. You know, fear is real and it's okay to feel fear. I mean, you're a fireman, you know, that fear is something that you have to process and do what you need to do anyway. And so often when we feel fear, we focus on catastrophizing what failure looks like, which is not really good actually, because it's going to get your attention and focus and worst case scenario probably never is even going to happen. So if you're thinking about though, the downside of your choices, give the upside of some choice too, and try to give that a little bit of attention and airtime as well. So acknowledge your fears, process your fears, figure out how you can navigate through them and great. And then the fear failure. Um, I think, you know, if I were to bring a hundred people into a room and say, what did you learn more from your failures or your successes? They would say hands down failures wouldn't have changed them for a thing. Okay. Well, that's great. Then why should we be afraid of them? I'm not saying go out and fail every single day, just saying it's going to happen. It's like life. <laughs> it happens. What are you going to do about it and move past it and learn from it? It might sting. It might hurt, but it's an experience that you can process and build from.
There's so many things floating around in my head right now with regard to that, because, you know, I, I struggle with that fear of failure. And I think most people do, but um, it is one of those topics that I, I taught in uh, the fire service. You know, when I, when I taught leadership, I always taught people to, you know, when you're in a stressful environment, when people are looking to you to make decisions, don't be afraid of failing. If that causes you to, to pause and, you know, not act, it's essentially the same as failing. You know, when yeah, no decision is worse than a bad decision in those situations, I would imagine. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so true. So for all those listening, uh, and um, I'm sure that people listening are going to want to buy this book. They're, you know, once they read this book, they're going to want to check out your other two books and, you know, organizations that want to have you come and speak. What, uh, now that the world is opening up again and and people are bringing in speakers again, uh, how would people get in touch with you? You know, how, what's the most effective way for people to get in touch with you and, and hire you for your services? Oh, well, thank you for that. Um, and I hope, right, with Bet On You that people do get a chance to check out the book. It has a free online companion too that allows you to create what we call a risk manifesto, consider it like an online vision board about what's next in your life. So it's really good. It's got great questions, a chance for you to put some thoughtful answers to it. And then you print it out and you're like, okay, this is the must do task list. I need to really honor the work that I put into it. So there's that. And if people want to stay in touch with me, certainly email at Angie at leadstar.us or I publish a lot on LinkedIn. And so under my name and LinkedIn is Angie Morgan Wachowski. This is a risk that I'm taking. I remarried and took my husband's last name. So I'm going from something simple and fun, Angie Morgan. I was Captain Morgan at a time, which is awesome <laughs> for spice rum drinkers in the world. But now it's Angie Morgan Witkowski, which is a big Polish last name, but that's where you can find me on LinkedIn. All right, cool. And I will have uh, you know, a link to your website in the show notes and I noticed that there were links to your social media on there as well. So yeah. um, everybody uh, can can go right to the show notes and, and click on that it's easy enough and find all your books and, uh, you know, best of luck to you and Courtney. Hey, best of luck to you too. And we'll certainly share this on our social channels as well. So I appreciate it, Dave. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review.